Dallas changing. Alexiak moves in. And a big game-winning goal against Calgary. Hands it off to Sekera. Kivarenta parked in front. Looking for root. Scores! Patrick goal for Kivarenta. And he sends Dallas to the Western Conference Final. Hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast, my name is Steve Bennett, and uh, we are in season 10, I think we're 16 or 17 episodes in, and I was just doing something I rarely do a few minutes ago, I was listening back to an interview I did with Jim Florentine on this podcast, and the reason it came out is that someone had reached out to me, shout out to Jenny, from Jenny and the Gems, and uh, Jenny Position. She had reached out to me and said, you know, I had listened to the podcast where you were mad and I was mad that day and, you know, she said she liked that and I wanted to listen back to what I had said and, you know, that ended and then it went right into the Florentine interview and I wanted to puke if I'm being honest. I just kept saying, Steve, shut the fuck up. Like You have one of the funniest human beings in the world. Jim Florentine on the show, and you won't shut the fuck up. And I was just disgusted with myself. And then I felt like the music was really bad, like the production was poor. And I can make excuses. You know, I don't have a producer. I'm in here by myself. You know, I'm trying to check levels. I'm trying to interview. It just was not done well. And I just feel like the quality, maybe, of what I'm doing is not good enough. And... You know, it's time for me to take a little bit more pride in this, maybe. Now, I I will say I'm not unintentionally taking pride in it, but, you know, I've been thinking about my lack of enthusiasm for sports the last six months, and I just wonder if that is seeping into the work that I do here. Because I just was really disappointed in myself. I thought it was better than that. Uh, So let's start. Uh, Let's start anew today. We have a good show today. Uh, I'm really excited about the first interview. I recorded it about a month ago now, which is a long time for me to sit on an interview. Uh, But it's with Mike Triplett from ESPN, and we previewed the Saints season. Now, there's been a couple things that have happened between now and then that obviously we don't talk about, right? We didn't talk about the clowny situation where the Saints took a swing at him and and didn't, didn't get it. Uh, and, you know, a couple little things that have happened between between now and then. We didn't, you know, we didn't talk about it because it, it's, it's, it's a few weeks old now. Uh, so please don't hold that against us. But as hard as it's been for me to get excited about the Saints, when I get the chance to talk to someone else who knows as much or more about the Saints than I do, I get really excited to do that. I, it's something I rarely get to do. You know, I don't live in New Orleans, so, you know, I don't run into very many people who, well, I'd never run into anyone who is as passionate about the Saints as I am. So I really had fun doing that, and we'll, we'll play that interview first. 
Uh, and then we'll take a break. We'll come to the book club. The book club is packed again. You know, I thought I would ease into the summer slowly or out of the summer and into the fall slowly. Uh, but of course I didn't. Instead, it's loaded. And I'll tell you why it's loaded in the book club update. And then after that, we're going to do an interview right away for one of the books. Jeff Benedict, uh, who's been on this podcast one time before. He was working at Sports Illustrated and did an article on Jabari Jabari Parker, who was at Duke at the time. And it was about what a superstar high school athlete he was in Chicago. And he came on to talk about that. Since then, he wrote an incredible book uh, with Armin Katain about Tiger Woods called Tiger Woods or just Tiger. I loved this book, and it was one of the few books I've read about sports in the last nine years that wasn't a part of the book club. I read it because I wanted to hear about what a hideous human being the Tiger Woods was or is, and I didn't. I wasn't able to get them after the fact. I was like, I want to interview one of these guys, and I just couldn't. Uh, but Jeff has a new book out now called The Dynasty, and it's about the Patriots' run. Now, I got this book like on a Monday and had to do the interview on Wednesday. So I read about two-thirds of it as much as I could and then did the interview with Jeff, which is fantastic. I think you guys will love this interview, and it's a good way to kind of get going for football season. Then on one last thing, I will do my NFL picks. I do those every year. I'll do that. I'll do, you know, division winners, playoff teams, do some awards, Super Bowl. And that'll be one last thing. Before we get to all that though, I want to I want to talk about one other thing, and that is the funk that I'm in when it comes to sports. Now, I just turned 40. We talked about that last time. And I want to thank everyone who reached out to me to say that they enjoyed uh, the monologue that I did about turning 40, including Jeff Perlman, uh, who reached out and heard it and enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone who listened. Thank you to everyone who wished me a happy birthday. Appreciate you. Uh, But my whole life, I've been a huge sports fan. Sports has been one of the biggest passions in my life whether it be the saints or the sabers or the sooners or a ball game whatever fifa soccer you know the world cup watching italy tennis college hockey you know i've been a massive sports fan and it resulted in me you know creating this podcast and in 2020 my passion for sports has plummeted and I think part of it is that when sports shut down it gave me an opportunity to fill the void in my life that sports left and I filled the void You know, I didn't spend a lot of time sitting around saying I wish sports were around. Now, the year started with another devastating Saints playoff loss. And I've talked on this podcast in the past about my desire to grow up and not care the way I care about the Saints anymore. 
I've talked about how I feel like the Saints sometimes, despite how much I love them, bring out a part of me that I don't love and I'm not proud of anymore. You know, the guy throwing a remote against the wall or slamming his chair, you know, or being miserable to be around for three days because the Saints lost. You know, I don't like it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like the way it makes my heart beat. You know, but I can't help it. And when the Saints season ended, I needed to get some distance from sports. And the Sabres were bad. So it was easy to do. And then, you know, COVID happened and they all the leagues shut down. And I filled the void. And then the leagues came back and baseball was first, right? And they, as soon as they started having, started having these issues with testing. And my Twitter feed just beats me up all of these sports writers with just the doom and gloom of COVID and the negativity that has made people come to the assumption that these people must be rooting against their sports. And they say that's crazy. Don't believe that. We would never root against our way to make a living. But sometimes I wonder what else could we think? What else could we believe? And I just need to I just needed to escape it. And I just didn't trust baseball. And it's kind of leveled out a bit. But I just couldn't go to it. I was like, I'm not falling into that trap. I'm not gonna get sucked into a season and have them yank it out from under me. I'm not gonna. And I've been having trouble looking forward to football like I never have before. With hockey. My team wasn't in it. I have no one to root for. And despite the fact that I want to enjoy it, I haven't. Now, I've checked in. I check in every night on my phone what's going on in the games. And I've watched them over times. But I just haven't kick-started. And I don't know why. And I just feel nothing. It's indifference. And I'm going to be honest. The social justice aspect of sports has affected me as a fan. And I would never tell anyone to shut up and dribble or anything like that. But if you're going to decide to take away my ability to escape during a game then I might just find another way to escape. And I know, look at, I know these leagues will march on without me. And they none of the players owe me anything. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just being honest that I just feel nothing. And one of the things that usually gets me pumped up for football is hard knocks. And when the first episode is a bunch of players taking a COVID test, And the third episode is a bunch of players talking about social justice. I just tune out and turn it off. It just doesn't, it just, it's just not for me. And I'm sorry, you know, if that offends you, you know, I really am because I don't mean that. I'm sorry if you think that I'm being irrational. I'm sorry if you think, you know, someone tweeted, I tweeted about this and someone said, well, how, 
how do you support a band that uses their platform to speak out on these issues, uh, but you don't, you're not going to let athletes do that. And I said, whoa, whoa. Okay, he's talking about Pearl Jam, who have since day one been political in a lot of ways. You know, if you recall MTV Unplugged, Eddie Vedder stands on a stool and writes uh, pro-choice on his arm. And I've always respected his right to express himself through his art. Uh, but I did dis disagree with Pearl Jam when they decided to cancel a, t a show on a tour in North Carolina a few years because they dis disagreed with the law that the state had. And they pulled the rug out from under their fans really close to the date of that show. I think it was two days before. Uh, people who had spent a lot of money to travel there. So I did, I did, I did speak out against that actually. You know, and you know, I'm just gonna be honest. I was really annoyed with the strike or whatever these players did in all these sports, the canceling of games and practices. Just you know, it's like, all right. You're not going to play? Then that's just another reason for me not to watch. This whole year has just given me all these reasons not to watch. And I am hoping that my love and passion for the Saints is going to snap me out of this on Sunday. I'm hoping that despite all the kneeling and the playing of a black national anthem, as long with the, uh, the U.S. national anthem and names on the back of helmets and uh, social justice messages on the field. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to block all that out and just focus on my love and passion for Drew Brees and the Saints. That that's going to snap me out of it. That 425 this Sunday, I'm going to say, let's go. Let's do this. Let's finish this. Let's get this across the goal line this year. Fuck the Minnesota Miracle. Fuck the non-call. Fuck that dud of a game last year. Let's finally do this. Like, I know somewhere down there, in my gut, that is there still. Uh, but I just haven't been able to, to find it. And if you disagree with me, that's great. If you want to talk to me about it, the sportscasters at gmail.com at sports underscore casters on Twitter. Let's do it. Tell me why I'm wrong. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm being unfair, but I am being honest that I just don't feel anything right now. I'm just finding a way to fill that time with something else. You know, whether it be just getting on the floor and playing wrestlers with my daughter. You know, or watching a movie with my wife or going to bed early, you know, or reading, whatever. I'm just finding something else to do at that time. Uh, and I hope as baseball playoffs come, I'm going to be pumped to watch them because I love baseball playoffs. I love baseball. And I hope the Saints are going to wake me up and I hope the Sabres play again someday. And I'll be able to watch them. I really do. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that and tell everyone how I'm feeling. 
And if you want to be a part of this conversation, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, we got work to do today, and the first part of that work is Mike Triplett from ESPN. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be back on the other side to talk Saints football. Our first guest today is a graduate of Iowa. He currently lives in Louisiana where he covers the New Orleans Saints for ESPN.com and ESPN Nation. He likes to come on this show every year and talk Saints football with me, and I appreciate him for it. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike Triplett. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good. Very good. Excited, I think. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I remember last year. When we had this conversation, I think I said, I don't like being front runners. You know, the, the Saints as front runners makes me nervous. Um, but they did all right, you know. I, I still feel like if the Seahawks score on the last play oh, yeah. of the regular that season, that they win the Super Bowl. I, I know it's a huge jump, but I just feel like they just needed that week, you know, and that. They needed the way their luck had gone in the playoffs the last three years. They were ripe to have a stinker that day. I seen that coming nine thousand miles away. My brother's like, "Oh, you're just negative in general." I'm like, "No, I just knew. I just knew, knew, knew." You know, but what are you gonna do? What do you think about last year? I don't know if I 100 percent agree. Yeah, I mean, when I think it back. I think being, I think all those teams in the NFC were so even that being the one seed would have made a huge difference, the bye week and the home game. But um, that sense of dread you're talking about, I mean, it did feel, I mean, it's two years in a row now where the Saints were kind of running out of gas a little bit at the finish line. Um, the, the only year where I'm like positive in my mind that if they would have been allowed to keep playing in 2011, sure. uh, yep. I don't feel like anything like they weren't losing to the Giants so good and and that if they played that Niners game nine more times they would have won all nine of them yeah if they don't start with uh, 17 turnovers in the fumble Mm -hmm. but yeah last year I don't necessarily feel like I feel like the last two years they sure they could have won a Super Bowl but they also could have gone out in, in the first round I feel like they were in a jumble of teams who had a shot the last two years sure that's fair um, like, yeah, I agree 100% on 2011. They were never losing an NFC championship in the Superdome to that Giants team. You know, yeah. so if they if they if they it's win that the one that got away. Right. <laughs> if, if they win that game and the Packers still lose, you know, in this like all, this different reality. Um, I totally agree with that. And and then they get to take. Of course, they also they also would have gone to the Super Bowl in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for one call, I don't know right. if anybody remembers this pass interference. No, I didn't. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> no, I, I hadn't remembered that one. It's interesting, too, because I remember there's a, like a shot of Peyton saying to the ref that that's like a legacy changing mistake. You know, and yeah. and as you get further, as the window closes and closes, I mean, hey, they have as good of a shot as anyone. And I'm going to talk about why and see what you think in a minute. But. It's like if they don't get back and they don't win another one, you know, I think that the that call is going to just keep looming larger and larger and larger, you know. And I rem- I mean it's that's not hyperbole at all. I mean, no. look, we just saw Drew Brees get left off of the 
100 greatest players of all time. Uh, now, to be fair, the 10 quarterbacks who made it all were legit choices. Sure. Uh, but Breeze would not be 11th if he had two Super Bowls. He'd be fourth. You know? Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, that second Super Bowl makes a big difference. It could be the difference between the Hall of Famer now. Sean Tate. Really could. And, I mean, it, it's also a chance to beat Manning and Brady in Super Bowls. You know, because if they yeah. get that call, it's the Patriots. And yeah. if they win that game, you know, not only does he have two Super Bowls, but he's beaten the two greatest quarterbacks of his era in Super Bowls. That would be that would be really interesting. No you know, question. Um, and and I remember going into the playoffs that year, I said to my wife, well, look it. At least I know it won't be worse than last year. You know, and then, of course, that was a lie. It was a million times worse. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, you know, and, and especially in retrospect, now that Diggs is a bill and I'm in Buffalo, I get to see that play, you know, three times oh, a no. week, it feels like, for whatever reason. Or at least the gif of him, you know, taking his helmet off and, you know, uh, I just can't get away from it suddenly. But at least we got beat there, right? I mean, at least, you know, the quarterback threw the ball up and, you know, poor Marcus Williams lost his mind. I don't know. At least it was something that happened in the in the in the in the flow of the game, whereas 2018, I mean, it still feels like we got cheated and it'll never not feel that way, you know, so. Nope. Uh, All right, let's look ahead because it's far too painful to look back. (laughs) Um, Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I could have never dreamed, I think, of losing three straight playoff games on the last play, which I think is unprecedented. I'm not, I don't think that's ever happened to anyone else. Um. I, th- I th- yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Whatever it was, if you have this certain time on the clock or whatever, there, there was some uh, stat about that. So yeah. at least they're making history. Right. I mean, it was literally the last play. Diggs was the last play of the game. The field goal the Rams kicked, last play of the game. And Rudolph's touchdown, last play of the game. So I'm pretty sure that's unprecedented. Uh, let's. Here's what I like. I'll start off with this. This is a unique season. I mean... There's nothing like this ever before. It's August 18th or whatever, and they just had their first practice in pads pads yesterday. There's no preseason games. So I see a positive and a negative. The positive is it feels like the Saints' established core and deep roster is potentially most suited for this. That will be the positive. The negative is one of the trademarks of the Peyton and Loomis era has been the development and importance of undrafted players. And it feels like this is a year where it will be almost impossible for the undrafted player to emerge as a roster player, especially on this roster. Uh, maybe not as big of a, a negative as I feel like the positive is as big of a positive, but talk about both of those, agree, disagree, maybe some other point that you're seeing. What about the uniqueness of 2020 and how the Saints are fit or unfit for it? Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm in uh, Las Vegas trying to figure out who to wager on, I'm going to pick the teams like the uh, the Saints and the Chiefs and the 49ers and the Ravens, the teams with the continuity. No one has more continuity than the Saints. Uh, like one change on the coaching staff, uh, all these you know, same quarterback and coach for 15 years. Uh, and they've proven. I mean, they, they have pointed out a few times that this reminds me, it reminds them of of 2011 lockout when uh, um, 
you know, they didn't sure. have their traditional off season and they had to adjust and they went 13 and three that year. And as we were both talking earlier, we thought they were the best team in football that year. Uh, so for all those reasons, you think advantage saints. I mean, look at a team like the Carolina Panthers. How can they compete when they, they changed everything? Every coach, quarterback, Luke Keekley retired, and they get no off season to, uh, to develop. So you think, wow, great advantage for the Saints. They're in position to, to, to take advantage. But, the, the, you know, the pessimistic look at that would be, well, the Saints were already going to be everybody's, you know, a, a top four favorite to win the Super Bowl already. And if you're one of the favorites, you probably want want no wrinkles. You probably don't want sure. the the playing field to be even. You don't want to have starters uh, missing a game because of COVID testing. You didn't want to miss out on your offseason. You didn't want something to screw up the routine. Um, somebody else asked me on another show, uh, um, oh, so they this, this is the best time to get Tampa Bay in week one, right? And it's like, well, you could certainly say that. Tampa Bay hasn't had any time to gel together with Tom Brady. But um, it's hard to imagine the Saints are going to be a finished smooth product themselves in week one. Uh, Which isn't uh, a strength of theirs so anyway. That, that becomes, yeah, yeah right? exactly. Right, I mean. Yeah, they're, never, they're never ready for week one anyway. Right. So, so, you know, it, it's, it becomes an anything can happen game. Uh, uh, but, uh, but in general, uh, I think there's every reason to be confident about the Saints. And, and not only that, their proven ability to, to – to sort of adjust. I mean, as Peyton and Loomis have pointed out, you know, they won a game when they moved all the operations to Indianapolis for a week uh, when a hurricane was coming into town. They they won both their London games. They won last year in Seattle when they spent the whole week in Seattle. Like they're a team that has proven that it can uh, that it can adjust well, uh, and they think they're going to be able to do the same this time. Sure. The uh, you had me think. Any thoughts about the undrafted piece? I know it's a a, a small thing, but it has has Loomis or Peyton no, mentioned yeah, it at all? I, I I do think I do think it, it it hurts the development of those guys, the their ability to identify the ones. Now, look, there's some guys that they probably already had conviction on. Uh, you know, they gave some big bonuses sure. to some of these guys that might have really liked them. Um, we knew how much they liked Tommy Stevens, for example, when, right? when they found out another team was going to draft him, So they made sure they got him. Uh, and those guys, I think could still make the team and still get developed all year. The ones that the saints knew about, but it's the guys that, you know, they don't already have a conviction on are going to have a hard time making an impression on them uh, and, and you know, working their way onto the roster. Uh, but in the first place, it felt like a year where I didn't see a lot of opportunities for undrafted rookies anyway right the uh, roster I, mean, I can so tell deep. you 48 48 yeah. guys who are going to make this roster right um so it's it's not like uh, uh a team that that needed 10 new players but uh but you're right i i think i think it possibly uh forces them to miss out on one diamond in the rough that they otherwise would have uh, identified uh that's definitely a, a realistic you know i seen joe burrow had tweeted you know, thank God this didn't happen a year earlier. You know, how different his life would be. You know, I wonder if someone like Pierre yeah. Thomas feels that way. You know, like imagine if this would have happened that year for me, yep. you know, or something. He comes to mind, you know, or even like Marcus Colston. You know, Marcus Colston, who was drafted, obviously. But you know the stories as well as I do about how disastrous his rookie camp was and then how his development in the training camp really Yep. led to them trading Dante Stallworth and um, really him emerging as one of the greatest saints of all time. 
you know so he, yeah. he's another guy that you know <laughs> no question about it right um you mentioned you know the saints uh being a favorite carolina in a tough position so i wanted to mention too before we get too far away from it i had aaron shots on the show from football outsiders saints are number mm-hmm. one in their statistical um database in the nfc and carolina is last um, so even in a tangible sense, the gap is huge. And now we'll find out if yeah. these intangibles will increase that gap even more. Or, as you pointed out, maybe there's some reason to think, you know, it'll work against the Saints as well in, in certain ways. Uh, let's talk about the quarterbacks for a second because you, you brought up Tommy Stevens. Do you think there's room on this loaded roster for four of them? Um, it, what, what is their plan there, do you think? Well, he's not really a quarterback. Uh, okay. He's actually not even working out with the quarterbacks. He did, he did work out with the quarterbacks, uh, but he's already he's already basically working out with the tight ends. Um, uh, so if he's going to get on the field this year, it won't it won't be a quarterback. It'll be on special teams, and it'll be right. you know for some gadget plays. But I I think I did have him on my projected fifty three man roster, but I envision it being one of those. Uh, red shirt years, you know, sure. like uh, Ethan Greenidge last year, or uh, Meacham had uh, one, Austin Carr and Taysom Hill their first year. Like, yep. you know, you're, uh, you're on the 53, but you're not active on game days. Uh, we're just holding a spot for you as long as we can, as long as, as long as you know the injuries don't pile up and they don't need those roster spots. That's kind of my guess. Is he makes the 53, but is not active right away on game days now. If he proves that he can handle a special teams role and they find something for him to do like they did with Taysom Hill, that could change. But uh, that's my guess for him. I, I would just I would be surprised if they gave up on him after four weeks knowing how, how far he has to go to to be an NFL player, switching positions, coming from straight from college and not having much time to work with him. We, we know they wanted him right. based on the way they... They, they traded next year's sixth-round pick to get him. Now, that doesn't guarantee him a spot if they don't like what they see, but um, that, that's, you know, he seems like one of those guys that they wanted to take some time with. And they wanted him very bad and obviously didn't want Carolina to get him either because I think that was the rumored right. team. Carolina might have some openings. Right, yeah, they have room. Uh, of the waiver wire. <laughs> uh, the uh, Breeze, I mean, obviously, one question I want to ask you about him. He made a big deal. And unfortunately, I know you've only got to see him once in person. But he made a big deal like a week ago or so about how him and his throwing coach had really worked on the 30-yard passes and how there had been a drop there. And there's been some criticism, probably fair criticism, of his ability to get the, the ball that far down the field. Now, I will say this. If you look at the last three years... Uh, Ted Ginn's first year as a Saint was his best year, and his third year was his worst year, and then the other one was in the middle. And I do think there was a couple opportunities in the second year and the third where they could have connected where you could maybe put the the negative on Ginn as much as Breeze. Still, we know that he needs to improve there, and he made a point to say it was an emphasis. Do you think at this stage of his career that it can improve, or do you think that he just has to focus on what he has the last few years, and that's his efficiency and, you know, using the strengths of guys like Mike Thomas and Alvin Kamara to, you know, turn these six, right. seven-yard passes into the 30-yard plays. Because the, the, the number of plays, 20-plus, 30-plus yards, is still up. It's just not the – they're not, you know, 30-yard passes to create them. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think my answer is, is both or somewhere in between, but uh, I do not doubt that if Drew Brees dedicated himself to doing something in the sure. offseason and he has the best uh, coaches, you know, he has Tom House at his disposal in his backyard uh, and he's got this determination and he had the time that if he decided my number one goal this year is to uh, have a little more power in my arm and throw a little deeper, I do not doubt that he found a way to do it. <laughs> I'm sure he found a way to do it and and he wants to incorporate that uh, into his game for a reason. However, we have, you know, undeniable evidence that he's going to, he's going to do whatever he just deems most efficient. And, and I think as much as I, I'm so surprised how many Saints fans have been down on him for oh, his, not his declining arm strength the right. last couple of years, because what he has accomplished without that, I mean, that arm strength, that's not his fault. That's, Mother Nature, that's sure. Father Time or whatever I should say. Um, and he's even more impressive that he's like, all right, you took my arm away from me? Well, I'm going to adapt, and I'm going to have the best, the two best passer ratings of my career, the two best completion percentages in NFL history, and the two lowest interception rates in my career. Yeah, he's cut uh, those way down. And we go 13-3 and three both years. Yep. Like, like that, just, that just adds to the legend of Drew Brees. Oh, I know he might not be my, you know, uh, if we're redrafting the entire league, uh, yeah, I'm probably taking Pat Mahomes ahead of him right now, <laughs> uh, especially for long term. If sure. I want to build a team, but right. but um, you put Drew Brees on the field, uh, he's going to figure out a way to be effective, and he has proven that I think more startlingly over the last two years by being like, well, I can't throw a 35 plus yard passes anymore, so I'll win this way, and uh, um, it's been impressive to watch it. Mike, I have always said that I will be the last person off of the Drew Brees, Sean Payton bandwagon, and I have not wavered from that in any moment. Um, and I think what he's done the last couple of years has been incredible, and I can't wait uh, to watch him. You know, every time I sit down to watch a Saints game, probably the last five years or so, I've thought, you know, enjoy the fact that this guy's on your team. Like, don't lose sight of, like, that we're running out of games or he's our guy, you know, and I've tried to really take it in and appreciate it. Uh, no reason not to believe that the plan for the quarterbacks in general is what they did last year with Bridgewater just being replaced by Jameis in terms of how they manage them with, you know, Jameis being yeah. the backup and then uh, Taysom doing what Taysom does elsewhere. Or I mean, do you I think, think they'd like for that to be the case, okay. but uh, I mean, Jameis needs to prove he can absorb the playbook and be ready to do that. Uh, but yeah, the one practice we saw yesterday, Jameis was the one who came in and was working with the twos. So I, I think he's going to get every opportunity for that to be the setup. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still a Jameis has to earn it by, by making sure he's got this playbook down. Um, but I think that's the point. And I agree with you. And I don't know for a fact what would happen if Breeze was going to be sidelined for six weeks again. Sure. Um, but if if Breeze goes down in the third quarter, I think on that day, each individual game plan would probably call for, you know, Taysom will already be part of the game plan, you know, as a tight end slash, 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 and, uh, and Jameis would be ready to run in the game and play quarterback. Um, but, yeah, if they found out, all right, we've got the next two months, who do we want at quarterback? I, I think that's still an open question. Let's go real quickly on just a couple more offensive things, and then we'll finish with the defense, and then two little things as well. Um, Emmanuel Sanders 
is going to join the offense. No reason not to be just thrilled about that, right? I mean, you love that addition, I assume. My my expectation. The only reason not to be thrilled about it is I know my expectations are too high. Like fair. <laughs> Mine are probably I, I know, too. I yeah, know you're not supposed to get that excited about a free agent, right? Um, I, I know you know I've been doing a lot of fantasy uh, research since the beginning of the fantasy uh, analysis. No fantasy analyst is high. <laughs> I know Sanders as I am, and I, I don't necessarily think he's going to put up monster numbers. But it was just like. When when we've been analyzing what the Saints have been missing at wide receiver the last two years, you could list five things and and type them into a computer and it would spit out Emmanuel Sanders. So it, it just felt like exactly what they needed. And, and you know we're talking Saints history. I think they can use him like they use Lance Moore, like they use Willie Snead. He can play out of the slot. He can work in the middle of the field. People say he's one of the best route runners in the league. And do things after the catch. It it, it just feels like the exact third downs. He's great. It, it just feels like exactly the type of receiver they needed to fill. What was a pretty big uh, void for them. You know, and I think what makes us both so excited. You can. I don't want to speak for you, but when they hit on these free agents, they hit on these free agents, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> like Darren Sproles is an example. Obviously, Drew Brees is the hit of hits, but it just seems like when they they've had the bombs. You know, like obviously. Bird, the bomb of bombs, you know, and then Fleener. They've had ones that didn't work out, CJ Spiller. But when they hit, I mean, these guys just seem to hit, you know. But what about Cook? Because it seemed a little like obviously Breeze gets hurt and that kind of slows their chemistry. And it felt like it took Cook a while to kind of maybe understand the team or the, the playbook. I don't know for sure, but it seemed like he really built up and then he looked amazing in that San Francisco game and unfortunately right. gets injured there. It seems like a few different times they were really close to just having a monster weapon in him that they haven't really had at that position since Graham. Um, are you excited there too? Because that's another spot where I'm like, that could be really good this year. Yeah, he's. I mean, it, well, it's funny that you say they've really hit on some free agents and they've really bombed on some free agents. He's obviously falls somewhere in, the, in middle, the middle, but yep. but I think you're. I, I think you're right. If you look at his total body of work last season, it, you might be like, eh, it's okay. But if you really put put it under the microscope, you see that once he was healthy, because Cook was injured too, both in the preseason and weeks like five and six, and and Breeze was healthy. And just looking at those games, one you know, after the bye, the second half of the season, where where they had really had time to sort of develop that rapport, it was really cooking. So, uh, I did not mean to say that, um, <laughs> but that's uh, uh, um, But um, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to get a huge number of targets necessarily. Like again, if we're talking fantasy, I can understand how you know he's only he was already only getting whatever you know three catches a game. Uh, and and now they're adding Emmanuel Sanders. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't think he's going to put up Jimmy Graham numbers like close to 100 catches or anything like that. But uh, really a good fit for this offense, and I think we did see evidence of that down the stretch last year. A, a position they've been trying to fill ever since, since Jimmy Graham. Graham. I, yeah. I think they finally found a guy who's a really nice fit there. And I think, like you said, it might not be eight catches a game like it was for Graham. But and look at that 49ers game. Maybe as a proof of this, I think when they see something. And it felt like they seen something the way he was used that first quarter and a half before he got hurt. He's going to have those games where they see something and it's like a, the game plan. It's a cook game plan, so to speak. And he, he could be a terror, I feel like, for us. He's going to have you know a 35-point fantasy game in this season, I feel like. You know, where 
They saw something, they targeted it, and him and Breeze just carved it. I don't know. But well, um, look, if you, uh, if you get Emmanuel Sanders and Jared Cook and you know picking up where he left off and Alvin Kamara healthy, this becomes a really hard and versatile passing game to defend. Last and off, that doesn't even mention any possibility of Traquan Smith all of a sudden having a <laughs> sure uh, year where he hits his potential. Right, and the X factor of Taysom and what maybe they do with him. He was the best player in the playoff game, right? The last. Game we see. How could I? How could I forget about the yeah, right. receiver extraordinary Jason Hill? Right, and then Kamara, you mentioned because fantasy, he was RB nine last year, and what did he say? Week six, the Jacksonville game, whatever week that was, he's on a bum knee the rest of the way. You know, he missed a few games anyway, and then you always knew he wasn't right. I think anyone who had watched him the first two years knew that that wasn't that same guy. That there was something wrong. And even he admitted his body language was bad. And, and I always kind of put that to he's frustrated. He's just not Alvin. Um, and he's in a contract year this year. And as long as the bad news he hinted at on Twitter yesterday uh, <laughs> has nothing to do with football, he's another guy I'm, like, pumped about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as you should be. Right. I mean, he, he – look, I mean, let's not forget that if we were having this phone call a year ago um, – the NFL Network one, top 100 players list is ahead of Christian McCaffrey. Sure. Uh, ESPN's NFL rank list, they were like four spots apart. I mean, uh, people said those two names in the same breath, and, and that talent and that sky-high potential has not gone away. Uh, he has, I mean, he also kind of wore down a little bit the year before after, you know, exploding in September. So they do need to figure out a way to keep him fresh and healthy. Right. Uh, and Peyton but, has always said that too. That ceiling is incredible. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's rip through a few more. Uh, so I'm sure you're getting close to needing to bounce. Um, this was the topic last year when we talked, and it is again, right? Marcus Davenport. They spent a lot of money, you know, a lot of capital to get him, you know, NFL capital uh, to bring him in. And man, when he flashes, he's another guy. When he flashes, you're like, I get it, but he hasn't been able to stay healthy. And it, he hasn't, you know, been in a role yet where Peyton's like, yeah, he's starting and playing every play. You know, he hasn't gotten anywhere near Cam Jordan, which is fine because Cam Jordan's a different beast, right? But he was drafted and and they invested in him to, to, to at this point, I think, be closer to that than he is. Fair? No, I, I agree. Um I don't know that we do know what he is yet, and part of that is because the injuries keep keep you know stunning the development. You know, right. there's three week stretches where you're like, oh, yep, there he is. It, it's clicking for him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, last year he kind of had a little bit of a rut even before the injury, but then he bounced back from the rut. You know, it's just it's it's coming waves with him. Uh, but I completely agree. Uh, I listed. The combination of, of Davenport and Sheldon Rankins is, I think, the biggest X factor on the whole team this year because I thought they should add to their pass rush depth in the offseason. I listed so receiver, I. linebacker, and yep. edge rusher as, as their top three needs, and they did not address the edge rusher position. So I'm concerned about the depth there. But if Marcus Davenport and Sheldon Rankins are both healthy after they've battled so many injuries and both reach their ceiling, which we have seen be so high, then it could be one of the best defensive lines in the league. If they both get hurt again, 
then I think it's it's a you know really thin defensive line. So the I, I put those two in the same breath because you know at times both have shown Pro Bowl potential, you know if not more. Um, but at times they've also you know been sidelined with these nagging injuries. So I I, I think those two are the big X factor. What what are they going to get out of those guys? Because uh, uh, that defensive line uh, um, you know could be really special. Or it could be really thin. Is this the best starting cornerbacks in the Peyton era? The best? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Greer I mean, I and liked, Porter, maybe liked, Greer and Porter. Yeah, I liked Greer and Porter a yeah. lot. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. I think there was a little Greer and Keenan Lewis overlap when Keenan Lewis had that great year. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I, I think Eli Apple was at that, but uh, it, it all depends on how good Janoris Jenkins is because Lattimore is probably the best number one of all those guys. Um, is he the best corner they've ever had in general? It's too early to too say early? Yeah. because it, it, if, if we're doing individual cornerback seasons, I might rank 2009 Jabari Greer number one. I, I frankly might rank 2013 Keenan Lewis right up there. Uh, Delvin Bro was it 2014 was incredible. He was, yeah. Uh, Lattimore is the only one we've seen have those great years, you know, Two and a half times now. He he had a little bit of a lull in his second season, but um, so I I think I think he's probably already the guy. Uh, uh, over I guess Jabari would be the the, the bar he has to cross because Jabari did it for five plus years, but uh, uh, he probably already is. Um, uh, and certainly his peak I think is the highest too. But uh, you know, so if Janoris Jenkins is better than any of those number twos. Then, then it, it it is. I mean, and and having two is so huge. I mean, we definitely saw that with the Super Bowl era teams when Greg Williams trusted both of his corners. Yep. All the things, all the things he could tee off and do when he trusted both of his corners. That's why they forced forced so many turnovers. And since we mentioned Jabari Greer, quick shout out to the Monday Night Football interception for a touchdown against the Falcons. It's if it's not a top five play for me in that season, it's a top ten. Sick moment. <laughs> Sick moment. Um, the linebackers are they good enough? No, right? But hopefully everything else is. is we'll that find out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you know, one of them is one of them certainly is. Davis. Right. Um, yeah. No worries there. Yeah. And and that's why signing Nigel Bradham when when they did is so fascinating because if they had gone out and signed him on on, on the first week of free agency. Uh, I think expectations would be really high for him. I mean, he's got a really impressive resume. He's been really a, a good player for a Super Bowl team in the Eagles, but, you know, a guy that, that they pointed to as being, you know, a core member of that defense. If they'd gone out and, like, identified him in March and said, this is what we need at linebacker, everybody would have probably been really fired up and said, yeah, perfect fit. Uh, but because it happened in uh, – August, it felt like, oh, well, maybe this guy make the team, maybe he won't. But there's every chance that he could be the the number two guy lining up next to next to Davis on every down. There's, you know, uh, I, I would be love a lot that. To ask yeah. Bond. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it'd be a lot to ask Bond to 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 be great right away as a third round pick, changing positions. Um, maybe Anzalone finally puts it together and has the best year of the season. But you know, all those guys are are obviously unproven question marks. All right. Two more quick things and then a couple of predictions. Uh, I would ask you one COVID question, and that's just that. And I wonder if Peyton or anyone in the organization has said anything about this. They've had three guys 
already test positive that didn't have it. And I'm going to be annoyed, I think, if, you know, we don't have Drew Brees one week because he tested positive for COVID and then <laughs> we find out he didn't have it. Are they doing anything? Is there anything they can do to cut down on these false positives at all? Has this been mentioned? Well, yeah, the, I think the NFL and NFLPA had already worked on an agreement, uh, although I don't know how this affected Deontay Harris's situation. Uh, and we don't know for sure that he was a false positive. I mean, there are other reasons you can go on the list, but, I, right. you know, they just don't announce them, so we don't know for sure. But um, I, they, you know, I, the real stink was raised, I think, when it happened with Matthew Stafford, and, and they said, all right, we're not going to put these guys uh, – I can't remember exactly what they said, but they're aware that that's a problem. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the simplest solutions would be don't put the guy on the list. I mean, he, he has to stay away from practice that day, but probably don't put the guy on the list until he tests positive two days in a row. Um, and, and then, you know, all he's doing is missing a day of practice. Uh, so, I mean, something like that feels like a solution, but I know it's something that's been addressed and that they're going to try to avoid. And then obviously there's some optimism, with a new test that became available, um, the Yale test, more rapid test yeah, just yeah. this last week. And, you know, maybe the results will be better. Or maybe they'll be able to test somebody in the morning and test them at night. So it's something that look, the league is going to want to avoid that as, as, as much as you do. <laughs> sure. Uh, the other thing, and I, 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 I almost don't want to mention it, but I feel like I have to, everyone's saying the right things, but are they past what happened with breeze? Like, is that, did, did I'm confident, knowing what I know about him, that when everyone got a chance to just be around him, and it seems like it played out with Emmanuel Sanders, who blasted him as much as anyone, and the other day was like praising yeah. him, right? So I feel like I'm being careful here because yeah, you I know mean, I'm trying to be careful. Look, I can't, I can't put myself in the shoes of everyone in the locker room. Sure, um, I'm just asking for your sense. But I do think sense. there is a difference between. I do think there's a difference between Drew Brees saying the wrong thing and, and look, you know, maybe, you know, just, you know, drawing a line in the sand and this is how Drew Brees feels and, and other people feel differently. And look, you can have differences of opinion, but sometimes things like that sort of reveal a person's true character and, and you just not the case here. It's like, now, yeah. now I know what your true character is. No, but I, I have a hard time thinking people would question Drew Brees' character. I hope they, not. they might just think, man, I don't know how you can believe this on this issue, but I, I don't think they can believe he's, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a bad guy. And now everyone knows he's a bad guy. You know what I mean? So right. you can just tell from, you know, players I talked to on and off the record that they were like, I was hurt and disappointed that Bree said what he said and felt the way he felt, but I have no doubt that he genuinely is going to want to make up for it and 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 genuinely apologize and genuinely uh, come together and you know have the, and he's had conversations with so many of his teammates. I mean, he's he's out there proving. Look, I want to make this right, and and, and I think that goes a long way. So I I do think. You know, maybe there's some guys who, who you know, they won't be as close with him as they used to be. But I do think, in general, it, it doesn't feel like an issue that it's still a black cloud hanging over the team. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people just treated him unfairly. And look at, I already admitted, I'm the last guy off his ship, right? So, and people have said to me, "You love him too much." Fine, I'll I'll take that. You know, but I wanted more people than Marcus Davenport and Joe Horn in the moment to kind of have his back a little bit. 
You know, it felt like those were the only two people who stood up for him. And there was another, uh, there was a few other guys who kind of didn't say anything. And I felt like in a way that was their way of kind of standing up for him. But they weren't, you know, kind of willing to go all the way. But kind of by not jumping on the pile, I felt like that said something. But, you know, I don't know. I, let's just move on. But, man, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope we go back to focusing on, you know, $5 million to feed the hungry at the peak of COVID and $15 million raised for the state of Louisiana. Another $5 million just pledged to the school districts, right? I mean, like, is there any, you live there. Is there anyone who's done more for the state of Louisiana, all the people right. in the state of Louisiana since 2006 and Drew Brees? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, I think, you know, I cannot, tell people how they should have felt about his comments. Nope, about, and I'm not asking uh, you to, I guess. The flag and, and, and you know, spare game at a time when emotions were really raw. It was, um, yeah. But but you, you haven't, you, you're you not going to see a lot of people say he's been a bad guy for years and, and, and he's got bad character and, and or anything like that. I mean, obviously, he's, the amount of good things he's done uh, uh, deserve to be celebrated and have been celebrated. All right, who plays center and who plays guard week one? Well, I think if they had an entire off season, they might have moved McCoy over to guard and and uh, kept Cruz at center. I think that might be their long term vision. But the condensed off season makes that a little harder to do. And and sure enough, on the first pad of practice, we saw McCoy at center and we saw Ruiz at at right guard. And that's at least how they're uh, starting out. Um, Sean Payton said they will probably rotate every two, three days, and I believe there will be some rotation there because they like these guys to be cross-trained at both positions. But it, it's hard to imagine in four weeks that there is a lot of time to tinker. Um, unless we go out to practice and see a different guy every other day, um, I think we'll have a pretty good feel in, in a week. And, and after seeing that yesterday, it, it feels like the front runner is McCoy center, Ruiz right guard. 4,500 yards, Breeze, over, under. Oh, under, under, under. The new normal for him. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, he hasn't he hasn't been on pace to hit that number for a few years, even when healthy. Uh, that's not a bad thing, but uh, uh, I'll take under forty five hundred. I'm sure there's a number where you could get me totally flummoxed. Didn't he have almost the exact same number two years in a row? Like, uh, I think on pace for right because last on pace yeah, like forty two hundred or something. Yeah, I wasn't like sure where to put so it. So I don't necessarily think. It, although I, I mean, I can take it back because we talked about how much more dynamic the passing game could be with Sanders now and a healthy Camara and a healthy Cook for a whole season. But I'll still take under 45. Uh, Michael Thomas, 107 catches. Oh, over. Over. You're making this too easy. I know. I'm trying uh, to find yeah, the right number. Twenty-seven <laughs> yeah. or something. I, I know. <laughs> but I, I'll take over 107. I'm trying to find the right <laughs> number on these, and I'm failing. Uh, <laughs> Kamara was RB nine in fantasy last year. Better or worse than that? Again, that's too easy, right? Of oh. course, better. How yeah, about five? The, uh, better or worse than RB five? Well, okay, so that's a good one because if you're in a PPR draft, I do a lot of ESPN fantasy, sure. and, and we've been doing our mock drafts, and it seems like everybody goes McCaffrey, Barkley, Zeke, right? And then every time it's different: four, five, and six, some combination of Kamara, Michael Thomas. And Dalvin Cook, um, and and Kamara versus Dalvin Cook is probably the the question. If they both played sixteen games, 
it might be uh, it might be Dalvin Cook, but uh, I think your bet is who do you, who do you feel more comfortable is going to play 16 healthy games this year. So a lot of times Kamara's that fourth overall pick. He, he he belongs right in that range. All right, 11 and a half wins. I know that's higher than Vegas, but I feel like I would give you the Vegas number. Would it be over? Well, but... Vegas, Vegas, yeah, Vegas knows. It's so funny. Like we we all do our predictions as ESPN reporters, and we're always about seventy five games over five hundred when everybody does their predictions. Vegas knows that their their balance sheet has to balance out at you know whatever it is, right? Uh, how many total games there are, wins and losses, because some teams are going to go one in fifteen, and some teams are going to have injuries and go seven and nine that everyone thinks they're going to go 11 and five. But, um, so you said 11 and a half, man, that is the line I would set for this team. So I'll just tell you that, uh, I have a hard time saying I would put money on them winning 12 games, but they also just won 13 each of the last two years. So I think I picked them to go 11 and five when the schedule came out, but uh, that's just sort of a baseline prediction for me because you know they always drop a stinker that they weren't supposed to lose. <laughs> right, the stinker. And then maybe there's going to be like a COVID week for every team this year. You know, maybe. Yeah, that's true. You know, I don't know. Um, I want. Let's see. I guess that's it. Uh, the Sportscasters finish it up with Mike Triplett, ESPN um, Nation. I think it's still called that, right? Uh, the beat reporter for the Saints covers the team for them, does a great job. What's your Twitter, Mike? At Mike Triplett. Yeah, okay, so that's easy. It's uh, trip like the action and lat like Leon. You just put those two together. (laughs) (laughs) It's like your name. Your name is what. I've never gotten compared to Leon Lett before. (laughs) You're right. Your name is like what he was doing on the way to the end zone, right? In in the Super Bowl there. He was like tripping. Yeah, Uh, exactly. uh, All right, uh, that was horrible. Um, It was almost as bad as your cook one. We're even, one to one. Um, All right. that's it, I think. Any oh, uh, what's what's the last play of the season for the Saints this year? Oh man, Will Lutz. Oh my gosh, game-winning field goal in the Super Bowl, or uh, mm. it's a good one. Man, I like their chances uh, uh, as much as anyone's. Uh, so uh, sure, why not? Will Lutz kicks the game winner in the Super Bowl. Let's go for it. That would be nice. And on an optimistic note, since we started on such a pessimistic note. Yeah. The, and and one last, one, this is the very last thing. I'll get you out of here on this. I mentioned the Jabari Greer play from 2009. Do you have a favorite either play from 2009 or maybe one from the Breeze Peyton era? Let's really go out strong. Like, What is something when you think about either the Super Bowl season or the era in general, a moment where you're like, that was just so sick? <laughs> um. That, that uh, the Monday night game against uh, the Patriots oh. was pretty incredible. The the I mean, Dante Stallworth that, touchdown. Everything that was involved in that game, we were kind of like, well, we're really going to find out. Yep. Is this team really that good? Uh-huh. And Breeze had the best performance of his career. Mike McKenzie comes out the right. street, intercepts Tom Brady. Um, it was like, oh, man, this team is really good. That Dante <laughs> Stallworth touchdown where – no one is near him, like by thirty yards, and I'm not exaggerating. I remember like sitting at home, and he was the only one on my fifty inch TV. The you know what I mean? Like he was so alone. And then as the camera kind of backed out a little bit, and you see the crowd behind him, like that's like one of the defining moments of like my Saints fandom is that touchdown, <laughs> and just like how crazy that was. 
Ah, wow. Um, all right. I will. I have to go because you got me too excited. Uh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate all the time. Hopefully, <laughs> <than how> we <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't too much time. Thank you so much. No, no problem. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high I want to thank Mike Triplett for being on the podcast today I appreciate Mike Good dude Nice enough to take my text message once in a while when I panic, when I find out Alvin Kamara might be holding out. I appreciate Mike. Good guy. All right. Quick book club update today. Four books in the book club right now that we are reading. Uh, the first one is our friend Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff, a long time sportscasters, regular, uh, a friend of mine, someone that I consider a friend, someone I look up to as a father, and he has a new book coming out in a couple of weeks, and it's called Three, Wing, Three Ring Circus. It is about the Lakers, uh, the Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal Lakers. Uh, and it is the second book that Jeff has written about the Lakers. He, of course, of course also wrote Showtime. Uh, but this one is Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Jeff will, of course, be on the show to talk about this book in a few weeks. Uh, the next book to mention is one that we will talk about with the author in a second. It's called The Dynasty, and it's by a guy named Jeff Benedict. He's going to be on, like I said, in one minute. Uh, this book is about the New England Patriots dynasty, and it's fantastically good uh, I mentioned that he had written with Armin Katane a book called Tiger Woods which was really good and this is every bit of that uh, and I loved reading it and loved talking with Jeff about it and I hope you guys check it out it's really good uh, another book that we're reading is called Sooner The Making of a Football Coach Lincoln Riley's Rise from West Texas to the University of Oklahoma. It's by Brandon Sneed. This is one I kind of found on my own. And I reached out to Brandon, who was nice enough uh, to work with me to get this to be part of the book club. It's actually just talking to Brandon on Twitter. We've had a little bit of uh, communication issues, but uh, the book is on the way. And I will read it and we will talk uh, to Brandon about it. And I'm really looking forward to that. And then the last book is called Elway. And this is a book actually that Jeff Perlman and I were talking about. He mentioned it. I'd already seen it, was interested. I reached out to Jason Cole, the author. Uh, and we're going to feature this book, A Relentless Life, uh, about John Elway. And I'm looking forward to that one. So four books, Jeff Perlman, Three Ring Circus, The Dynasty by Jeff Benedict, Elway by Jason Cole and Sooner by Brandon Sneed. 
That's the book club update for today. Let's take a break. And I'm really excited for you to hear this and really excited for uh, you to hopefully uh, read this book because it's awesome. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with Jeff Benedict. Our next guest today is a graduate of Eastern Connecticut State University. He went on to get his master's at Northeastern University. Uh, He worked at Sports Illustrated last time we talked to him. He had written a cover story about Jabari Parker. Since then, he's authored a book with Armin Katane about Tiger Woods. And his new book, The Dynasty, about the dynasty of the New England Patriots, is part of our book club today. And Jeff's nice enough to take some time to talk to us about it now. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jeff Benedict. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Yeah, I just got the book Monday, so I read, you know, as much as I could. I got about eh, 340 pages in. But um, before we get to the Patriots, I have to say that I absolutely loved Tiger. Um, Really enjoyed it, so I just wanted to mention that real quickly. Well, the Tiger Woods biography was a great uh, book to do right before the Patriots book. Uh, So I, it was, it was a great transition to go from Tiger Woods to the New England Patriots. Well, they're similar in a way, obviously in terms of dominance for sure, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I think if you either love them or hate them too. Yeah. And I think you either either love or hate them and you, um, my from my perspective at least the the magnet to both him and the organ the patriots organization was they're the best in the world at what they do and so uh it doesn't matter to me whether somebody loves them or hates them it's more about understanding greatness like in tiger woods the central question was what does it take what did it take what was the cost or the price of becoming the greatest golfer who ever lived and similarly with the Patriots, what did it take? How did they build this dynastic machine? And then once they built it, how did they sustain it for so long? Yeah, and search, certainly in the case of Tiger and reading that book, the cost was many relationships, right? I mean, they were just ruthless when it came to when they decided it was time to end. I mean, right with right when it, I mean, it really starts, maybe the first one I can remember from the book is Tiger's like high school girlfriend or whatever comes to like a tournament and he has decided that they're, they're done and she her name's like not in the hotel. I don't remember exactly as a year or two ago I read it. Yeah. But I just remember it's just so ruthless, like and maybe ruthless yep. is the word for how maybe greatness and ru- ruthless can be synonymous sometimes. And certainly we learned from the Michael <laughs> Jordan documentary. He was pretty ruthless yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, the Patriots, obviously it's a, the, the story is very different because it's about a team and, you know, looking close at how they built it and, you know, really starting with how Robert Kraft even acquired the team. That's really right. where I start. Yeah. And that's a really fascinating story. Let me ask you first, before we get into the Patriots, how is it different for you in terms of process? Cause we're interested in process and writing and stuff like that a little bit on the show too. How's it different from you when you're collaborating with Armin and Tiger, and then now this one, you're not. It's it's you know just your name on the cover. Uh, how is that different for you in terms of approach and 
and style and, and the way the book comes together? Um, well, the for me, collaborating with someone is not the norm. Uh, the norm is writing alone. I mean, most writers write alone, and I'm certainly in that camp. Um, collaborating is has a whole set of challenges that come with it. Um, and But I've collaborated twice with Armin. We've done two books together over the years, and um, and they were great collaborations. And uh, he and I are, are really close friends. But that those were almost one-offs for me because, you know, I typically don't do that. So in, the, in this Patriots book, I mean, this the difference is that you are solely and entirely responsible for the research and the writing and everything that goes into it. And so process-wise, it's in, in terms of how I do what I do, it's not that it's not really different. Um, it's just that you don't have a, a collaborator with you, but you still go through the same. Like, for instance, when we did Tiger Woods, we started by constructing a timeline of Tiger's life. We spent about a year developing that timeline, and it was about 100 pages long when we were finished. When I did the Patriots book, I did the same thing. I started out by creating a timeline of the dynasty, and it took me a year to build that timeline, to populate it with all the, all the things that needed to be in the timeline. And then at the end of that process, I have a, you know, you think about a timeline that you create, it's 100 pages long. If I printed it, it would be 100 Word document pages. That's a lot of pages, knowing that no one in the world is going to read it. Like, that's just for me, for right. my own background purposes. But it becomes the blueprint for the book. Like, that, that's my roadmap. Once I finish building that thing, now I've got a roadmap and I know where I'm going. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's not what I'm going to write in the book, but it's the blueprint for where I'm, where I'm going to go. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what you think about these guys, and this isn't the point, but I know Bill O'Reilly, and I think his, his collaborator, I think the guy who collaborates his name is Duggart or something like that. Um, I know I had heard that the way they split things up is really, I do this and he does that. Is, and and I don't just mean like, I'll research the, I don't know, I think they wrote about the assassination of JFK. I don't just mean like, oh, I'll research you know this guy, you do that guy. I think one of them does very much like the research and the other one the writing. Did you guys split it that way or are you more splitting the story as opposed to the actual duties. No, I mean, it's, it's a really totally different. I mean, when you talk about guys like O'Reilly and any of these guys that are big television personalities, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, all these guys, they're not writers. They're, they're television commentators. And so they hire writers and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying it, it, it's very different than what Armin and I do because right. we're writers. I think and Bill so is different when, though. Cause I think that like both of their names are huge on the front. You know, it's not like a ghostwriter situation. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying it's ghostwriter. I'm okay. just saying that they look, when you spend as much time as he spends on television, you sure. cannot write a book. That's right. what I'm saying. Right. I mean, I just spent two years on this book, and when I say two years, I mean every day for two years, 12-hour days. You can't do that and then do television all day. I'm just saying it's physically impossible. So it's a, it's a completely different process, what Armin and I were doing, than, than guys you see on television who are cranking books out all the time. And so it, you can't really just uh, sort of split it up. You have to figure out, in order for the narrative to seem like it's, seamless to the reader you've got to do things it's it, that's what makes it so tricky it's hard because 
no two writers write the same way. You know what I mean? So if you, you know, Armin's written a lot of books and so have I, and you could take any two writers you want, if you pair them together and ask them to write a single narrative together, it's very hard because you both have your own writing style and you don't want the reader to feel like every time he changes chapters, oh, now the other guy's writing. (laughs) Right. You know, like you're bouncing back and forth. And that's, I think that's probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest part of collaborating with another writer, which is very different than collaborating with, and I've done this, I've, I've hired researchers and research assistants on lots of books. That's also a collaborative effort, but it's not hard because I'm the writer. You know, I'm solely in charge of the manuscript sure. and the narrative, and that's a lot easier to manage. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking back to like that first essay you turn in in, in um, English 101 in college, and you think you you know you nailed it, and then the the professor's like you got to find your voice, right? So then the the challenge, right. yeah, is that you and Armin have obviously both found your voices, but now you have to find a way to make them sound exactly the same in the book. Yeah, and that's pretty that's pretty hard. Right, it sounds very hard. <laughs> it sounds very hard, and, and I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. I I had never at one point thought, you know this guy's writing or that guy's writing. I mean, I probably didn't know your styles enough to try to even attempt that, but to me, it just felt like one, one, one narrative. So I I guess you achieved it. Well, that's good. I'm, you know, that, that's, that was the hardest thing we had to do. It sounds really hard. Uh, It's gotta be hard too. um, When a dynasty like the Patriots, now you can make the case that the dynasty, no matter what happens from this point forward, maybe is different because Brady's not there anymore, but Belichick is still the coach. Kraft is still the owner. Uh, they still won the Super Bowl two years ago. This is like something that's still happening. Uh, was it hard to get people to open up and talk about this? It's I don't know. I'm thinking in my head maybe for whatever reason, and I could be totally wrong, that if you do a book about something that happened 20 years ago and you know some people are dead or whatever, maybe it's easier to get people to open up. They feel that the time has passed. Is it harder to get people, especially when you get to some controversial topics like you know, some of the, the, the rules, things that the Patriots have found themselves up against. Um, is it hard to get people to open up? Was that a challenge with the, the fact that the dynasty is still ongoing? I think that it's, you know, just on a very basic level, it's, it's hard as in general to get people to open up. Um, there's a difference between getting people to talk and getting people to open up. Right. And, um, so whether you're dealing with, I mean, all of those things that make it difficult to get people to open up are magnified when you're dealing with an organization like the Patriots. They're, they have a reputation for being a closed shop and um, for not allowing access to right. journalists and things of that nature. And um, I, I, you know, I certainly was cognizant and aware of, of all of that going in, but uh, I was in, I was coming at this as a total outsider. You know, I'm, I'm not a football writer per se. I've, I've never covered football, like had a beat. Um, I've certainly never written about this team and had never been to a press conference in New England or watched a game from the press box. I just, I hadn't been around this team at all. So I was coming at this with a, as a complete outsider. They didn't know me. And, and I didn't know them. I knew who they were, but that's about it. And so uh, I had to, you know, 
build relationships and spend a lot of time getting comfortable, getting them comfortable with me and, and me, you know, kind of feeling my way around and learning a lot. I, I spent most of the first year on this project doing a lot of, I spent a lot of time up at Gillette stadium, uh, just getting oriented and, and, you know, learning my way around and getting, trying to get my hands around the project. I didn't even, I didn't do any writing at all in that first year because I just felt like there was so much that I had to learn. Um, not only about the history, but also just about the different personalities and the people that I was going to need to, you know, to approach an interview for, to be able to write a book like this. Was there ever a moment or, or something where you felt like you, broke down the wall is there anything specific like where you felt like okay you know because i see what you mean about you know trying to gain the trust and like you even said open up to, you know talk versus open up you know i do that on this show right i mean if i get someone to agree to be on the show they're going to talk but you know if i can get them to open up then it's going to be good and the information will be better was there a moment where you felt like you were you had broken that down where you had gained their trust i imagine it's got to be difficult with a team as guarded as them uh, sure. And it, and it, you know, that's why it took so much more time. Um, <clears throat> and I think that also because there's so many people involved in this story, it's not, it's not like, you know, this is just a story about Robert Kraft or just a story about Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, but it's all of them and a large cast of other characters. You know, it's, it's Jonathan Kraft and, and Drew Bledsoe and Randy Moss and Rob Gronkowski and, Vince Wilfork and you, you know you just go on and on and I I was also trying to build other characters into the narrative that you wouldn't expect to find in a football book whether it was you know John Bon Jovi or Elton John or you know these just these different people who who intersect with the Patriots dynastic story and and so each time I'm approaching one of these people, I've got to develop some level of trust and comfort for them to, to be able to talk to me. And I think a lot of it stretched back to the thrust of the book. You know, I think everybody realized that I wasn't there. I wasn't digging for dirt. I wasn't looking for scandal. What I was looking for was just to explain. I really just wanted to understand you know, just like with Tiger, how did this happen? And, you know, I liken it to like going in an engine room and just looking around the engine room and seeing how this big machine operates. And that's what I wanted to do was get inside the Patriots engine room and see how they made, how they built it and then, and how they maintain it. And uh, being allowed to see that, I think my presence up there and spending enough time around the organization they could see that I was genuinely serious about what I wanted to do and that I was taking a serious approach, I think. And, um, you know, over time you're around long enough, you start to develop some, some rapport with people. And that's, that's a lot of part of my job really is, is building rapport. Sure. I think everyone has heard, or most people have heard that are interested in this kind of thing. I've heard the story about the Kraft family being season ticket holders of this team and kind of their romantic, you know, view of football and the team. But I certainly didn't know, maybe less people know, how long Robert Kraft tried to buy this team, you know, how he sort of leveraged his way 
into buying the team, you know, through the control of the parking lot and the stadium lease and all those things that you detail in the first hundred pages or so of the of the book, which is kind of where it starts is, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kraft meeting, their love story, um, and then this kind of years-long process of finally becoming the owners of this team. And, you know, I was reading that, I was just thinking, like, it's it shouldn't be a surprise, or it, it became less and less of a surprise, you know, each page through that first hundred or so that the Krafts were the owners of this successful franchise. You know, it just felt like everything that you detailed kind of predicted it in a way. Just how successful he was in everything and how driven and how dedicated just to the team. I mean, how many owners of teams right now, you know, lived a story with the team previous to owning it like that? Probably not very many. I don't know if you felt that uh, way. I think it's, I think it's none. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think the answer is none. Right. And it's interesting, like, hearing you just sort of rattle off parking lots and stadium leases and all that it sounds so boring but it's and not yeah that yeah <laughs> but that's what i you know i thought about it that was really challenging as a writer is to think how do i get a reader through leases and parking lot acquisitions and stuff without putting them to sleep because it's so important to understanding the dynasty that it had to be there and so I thought a lot about how to do that. But the great thing is, as you know, because you've read it, there's so much drama involved. Um, and you have this larger-than-life cast of characters that are involved. And this is obviously way before Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are on the scene. It's even before Bill Parcells is on the scene, uh, this part of the story, where they're, where it's crapped on a, on a quest to get control of this team. But the, the backroom deals and the infighting and all the things that go Michael on in Jackson. That period. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Yeah. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's who would think Michael right. Jackson's going to be in a book about the Patriots. Right. And that's but, kind of what you said earlier the, too, you know, about bringing these other people into the story. Yeah. yeah. Because they're legitimately important parts of the story. It's not like name dropping. No. It's that Michael Jackson actually had a profound impact on how the Patriots got acquired by Robert Kraft. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. And so that's why I wanted to explore all of that. Yeah, that was one of the, the big first dominoes to fall. And I think that we did a really good job of teasing uh, people into wanting to learn more about that so we can move on. Um, I remember hearing this story. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Howard Stern show. And um, uh, one day or whatever, I remember just, I'm listening to it, and Artie Lang and uh, Gary Delabate are telling this story about how the night before, they had been picked up by the, the, the private plane of the crafts and flown out to New England where there was a party for one of the sons, I can't remember which son, uh, not the main man, but uh, I think another one of them, and were paid this like ridiculous amount of money to do this short amount of stand-up at his birthday party, and they got this unbelievable tour, and you know, the craft set him home with souvenirs. And I just remember hearing in that story about like what a loving family this was and how much they, how close they were and how much they cared. And I know sometimes when you think of people with a lot of money, you know, billionaires, sometimes you can feel this kind of ruthlessness that, that kind of comes with that. And, um, 
But I think what works about this story and the Patriots and someone who, look, I'm not a Patriots hater despite being in Buffalo because I'm a huge Saints fan. And I mean, I also don't care for them in any way. Like, I'm indifferent to them. But I think what made me kind of like, sure, it's about the Patriots, but it's also really about family and about the dedication that this guy has to his sons and how much they love each other. And through reading this book, I kept thinking back to that story um, that Artie and Gary were telling on the Howard Stern show that day. Um, again, maybe putting random people into the story, but um, like if you if you, if you want to read about a dad and and his love of his sons, and this is a good place for that, surprisingly, maybe. Yeah, I and the reason I wrote all of that is because I I was taken by it. I think that that's you know that's what I saw. I mean, I, I tell people that are close to me, like friends, like you know. How did you go about it? What did you write about? And I said, basically, I wrote what I saw. And uh, that is the benefit, I think, in this instance of being inside the organization and being uh, permitted to be around the family was um, I, I just witnessed a lot of things with my own eyes. Uh, and the stories you're talking about, like even the Howard Stern, he's another character in this story, right? I mean, and it starts because Robert Kraft knows that his oldest son, Jonathan, is a huge Howard Stern fan. Sure. And on his 40th birthday, uh, Robert calls Mel Carmazin, the CEO of uh, the company that owns serious. Yep. Howard time. Stern's radio station. Yep, serious. And basically, or, oh, wait, Intercom hey, at the time, right? Because they were still at, yeah. right, they were still at uh, K-Rock. They hadn't gotten a serious yet, I don't think. Yeah, and he, he just he wanted to set up a, di- a private dinner for Jonathan to meet Howard for his birthday. And, you know, Mel explained to Robert, well, Howard doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't like to do that kind of thing. And But Robert, you know, sort of leans on him a little bit and they're friends. And make a long story short, Mel Carmazin sets it up. And they have this dinner set up in New York and Jonathan doesn't know what's going on. He thinks it's just going to have dinner with Mel and his parents and all this. And there's an empty chair at the table. And Jonathan asks why there's an empty chair. And they say, well, commissioner Tagliabu might join us later. And a little <laughs> while later, he gets a tap on the shoulder and he turns his head and it's Howard Stern. <laughs> and that was the beginning of uh, the relationship between Stern and the Kraft family. It started right there. Right. And, uh, it's a great story. It's in the book and it becomes important later because that's how uh, Bill Belichick ends up going on the Howard Stern show, right which is something Belichick would never do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like yep. the, on a Monday after so. they had won the Super Bowl. I want to say maybe the Panthers won. I think the second yeah, one. It was won. the very morning after. I mean, yeah. I don't think yep. Belichick had maybe had two hours of sleep and he was on the radio. Yeah. And I've heard that several times either through best of compilations that I listen to outside of Stern's universe. And also I know they play it like on his Stern theology show, but yeah, I remember that very clearly. I, I'm pretty sure it was the day after the Panthers Super Bowl, the second one they won. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong about that, but yeah. 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 It's unbelievable. And again, another example of what you said earlier, someone who you wouldn't think of being part of the story and they're not shoehorned in. It's a natural thing. Let me ask you this. I'm sure there was a bunch of things, especially, you know, you make your timeline and there's some things on that timeline, you don't need to be covered in the book. And is there any story, anecdote, situation that's covered in the book that really came to life because of an interaction 
that you had with someone kind of retelling that story that maybe gave it a little bit of an extra importance or an extra life to you because the person that you sat down to get more information about it made it come to life in such a way that it, it was even more interesting than you thought? Oh, sure. I mean, that would be true of most of the things, you know, there's a lot about the Patriots that are, is known. And so with a lot of these stories, I needed new information or new angles to the stories. I mean, the first story in the book is, right, Bledsoe surgery in the hospital after the Mo Lewis hit. Everyone right. who's watched football in the last 20 years knows about that play and that hit. And But there was obviously more to it that, that none of us had known. And so uh, in talking to Drew about it and also to the all of the other uh, figures that are involved in that scene, Bledsoe, Belichick, Brady, Kraft, Bledsoe's wife, and the doctor, um, I, I learned a lot more about that very publicized moment and, uh, you know, chose to open the book there because it, it, it was so dramatic and much more dramatic than any of us had realized. One thing I that, you know, I certainly didn't know, and, and I think maybe sometimes, you know, we had read on this show Jeff Perlman's book about Brett Favre, and one of the things that's a big part of that book is just how little he and Aaron Rodgers seemed to care for each other in the beginning. Certainly Aaron Rodgers, I know, started that interaction between the two of them off with just kind of a joke that landed wrong and kind of set off a, a course of... So you kind of apply that almost to everyone, at least I do probably mistakenly, you know, and I guess maybe I thought that, that, you know, Favre and Brady, or excuse me, Brady and Bledsoe. But then you find out in that first story that, you know, Brady's lying to people in the hospital so that he can get next to, you know, Bledsoe in that moment and be there with him when he's, you know. And then again, another thing I didn't know that it was so so serious, life-threatening potentially. Um, right. Yeah. Does Brady ever have a relationship with another quarterback? Again, I'm only 300 pages in. I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get to read it all because I, kind of came together real quick, but does he ever have an, another relationship with a, with like another quarterback teammate as, you know, Sure, as he does. I mean, he has some really great relationships with uh, a number of the, you know, the backup quarterbacks. Uh, he actually works I know Hoyer well with them. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hoyer is someone that he's, you know, had a great working relationship with, but others as well. I mean, he's, he's had a really good run with, uh, with the other quarterbacks. I'm sure people ask you this a lot, but is there anything that happened through your research? We kind of touched on it in the last question, but is there is there something um, that is known um, about the Patriots that, and, and like you said, kind of all these stories, you, you put them in a new light, um, and that's kind of the whole point of the book in a way. But um, what about something that, and, and maybe I'm guilty of asking the same question twice, but I guess I'm just trying to ask it a different way in that, was there something just so mundane? Um, like, all right, I'll give you, a, let's do it this way. I stink, but this is a better example. Um, I didn't want to read about the suspension much. It's so boring to me, the balls and the, you know, the air and the science behind it. And I remember Dan Wetzel writing all these like exhausting pieces about, you know, <laughs> the suspension and why it's valid because of science, why it's not. How'd you humanize that one? Like, was that a challenge, humanizing some of these mundane stories and putting kind of a different life into them? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, look, those stories like Deflategate and Spygate are important, important parts of the dynasty. And so, 
they needed to be covered. And I didn't want to just say a bunch of stuff that we've, that's already been said a hundred times over. And so again, it was to look at those uh, things from a different set of eyes. It's basically like taking off someone's glasses and putting a different pair on. Maybe the pair you put on are now three dimensional instead of regular glasses. And with a, something like Deflategate or Spygate, it's, it's being able to help the reader see the other dimensions of the story that have not been visible before. And there are ways to do that. And usually the best way to do that is to find characters or personalities that are central to the story that haven't, that haven't talked before and whose, whose role in the story has not been known. And so that's what I did with Deflategate and Spygate. And, um, and I think that that, that's why it doesn't feel like, Oh, we're just reading what we've already known about this, you know? So, so the underlying facts haven't changed. Um, but the context around those facts is very different, you know, in the sure. book than previously. The book is called the dynasty. The author is, uh, Jeff Benedict. You can read a Patriots book that includes the likes of Michael Jackson and Howard Stern and John Bon Jovi, uh, in a non, as you, what did you say? A non-name-dropping way. Uh, let's get you out of here on this. I'm in, I live in Buffalo, and uh, a lot of people, when they talk, see the Bills are the Bills are versus Brady something and two, and the something is a lot. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but there's something and two. So there's a lot of bitterness and a lot of relief. I think that Tom Brady is not in the AFC East anymore, around where I live. And when I hear people talking about the Patriots, I know when they're big Bills fans because they say, yeah, six Super Bowls is impressive, but they're cheaters. Are the Patriots cheaters? When you, when you finished your research and your your work here, did you, did you walk away thinking the Patriots were cheaters? You know, no matter how I answer that question, uh, you know, there's a certain segment of your audience that isn't going to like the answer, and then there's a certain segment of the audience that will like the answer no matter how i answer it that's like a no-win question so no, i'm sorry i didn't mean when to, I, I didn't mean to do that no you. no no i, I appreciate the question because it's a good one i i think that the what i tried to do in the book is you know you know this because you're not reading i'm not weighing in on these things no um because i, I didn't want to write a book where i'm telling the reader this is what you should think you should think these guys cheat or you should think these guys got screwed because they don't cheat what i wanted to do was just write the facts as close as I could get to the truth in every one of these instances and just lay it all out. And, and the reader can, they can make their mind up. I think when you put them in the room and see what went down in these different situations and they don't need me to filter it for them. And so I, I'm reluctant to do that on the air just because then I'm starting to filter. It sounds like I'm trying to tell people how they should interpret the story. And I, I really don't want to do that because I think that I actually think that readers would prefer that writers not do that. Like readers are smart and they can figure things out for themselves. And so, um, I, I just didn't editorialize in the story. I didn't take sides, you know? Um, and because I think the minute you start doing that, it's, it's really, you, you turn readers off. And, and so, I didn't want to do that here. It's uh, it's more of just, look, here's what happened here. Here's why it happened and how it happened. And then here's what happened next. <laughs> and it, it all, because it all goes together. One builds on the next. And uh, 
that's why I say that Deflategate and Spygate, they're joined at the hip. You know, um, there, there's a direct line you can draw between those two. You're giving me the Eddie Vedder uh, song lyrics answer here. You know, the, uh, <laughs> they, they asked Eddie Vedder, you know, what's Jeremy about way back in 1992? And he goes, you know, in his cool way, he's like, well, you know, man, you know, different people interpret our lyrics different ways. And, you know, we don't <laughs> want to ruin anyone's interpretation of Jeremy. Right. That's what you're telling me here. Well, you can compare me to Eddie Vedder whenever you want. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he is the king. Listen, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for doing this. And it, the book, again, is called The Dynasty. Uh, you can follow Jeff on Twitter. He's at author Jeff on there. Um, and I'm sure there's – I'll put some links out to how you can buy this, of course. And, um, Jeff, I apologize that I didn't get all the way through it. I read as much as I could um, in the two days no, I had great. it. Um, and I appreciate Great. you doing this and um, best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank Jeff Benedict and Mike Triplett for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can hear that show, this show, last show, all the shows on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, Instagram at sports casters. Uh, email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, and, of course, you can download the podcast on Stitcher or Spotify or SoundCloud or Apple or wherever. And if you feel the need to do a five-star review, it's always appreciated. Don't forget about my buddy Peter Winson. Greetings, greetings from Allentown at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Um, he has a new episode every Thursday. And he was recently on the Place to Be Nation flagship show with Justin and Scott, and I will be on that show in October. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, don't forget about our buddy Adrian Dater. He is out of the bubble with the Colorado Avalanche, who went from Stanley Cup probables to out really fast. Follow him at Dater on Twitter for news about his site, coloradohockeynow.com. All right, one last thing for me today. We had a heavy one last week uh, where we talked about my feelings about turning 40. So let's back off all that seriousness a little bit and let's do some NFL predictions. Uh, if you're a gambler, I would not put bets on these picks because this is the least prepared I've ever been for an NFL season, whether it be fantasy football uh, regular football, suicide pools, pigskin pick them. I just don't know. I have not been following training camp the way I normally do. Uh, but with the knowledge I've accumulated uh, the last couple of days, uh, this is what I got. In the AFC East, I'm going to take the Patriots. Uh, the Bills will finish second and make the wild card, and I think it's going to be an 11 and 5 and a 10 and 6. Really close, but the Patriots swooped in at the last minute. They got Cam Newton who's going to be motivated. The chip's going to be on his on his shoulder and he is a great front runner 
And if they can get out ahead, he will be good. And I think they will frustrate the Bills uh, once again and win the AFC East. In the North, I still have the Ravens. I thought long and hard about the Steelers with Roethlisberger being back. But the Steelers haven't been a playoff team for two years in a row. And if it's three years in a row, it'll be the first time since the 1970s, I think, that that's happened. Uh, I did pick the Steelers for a wild card. I got the Titans in the South, and I think that will be the worst division in football. I think the Titans season last year was a fluke. I think that the Texans are a team on the decline. I don't know what they were doing last offseason. I feel a little silly about betting against Deshaun Watson, though. And who knows, maybe David Johnson has a resurgence there, but I don't like it. I don't like the Jaguars. They stink. They've given everything away, and I still don't like the Colts. I don't know why they would be better because Phillip Rivers is there. So I picked the Titans by default. No other playoff teams from that division. Uh, I went with the Chiefs in the West. And I picked the Broncos as my last wild card. Of course, there's seven playoff teams this year instead of six. In the NFC, I picked the Cowboys to win the East. Um, Their offense just seems loaded to me. And uh, I don't see why they shouldn't win 11 games. So I'll pick the Cowboys. I picked the Vikings to win the North. I thought that Green Bay sucked last year, and they were the worst 13-3 and team in the history of the NFL, and I don't think they'll be good this year. I didn't pick them to make the playoffs. I picked the Saints to win the NFC South. Uh, I did not pick Tampa Bay to make the playoffs. I think Atlanta will finish in second place in the NFC South, but also miss the playoffs. I picked the Seahawks to win the NFC West. Uh, With the 49ers a close second, that will be the best division in football this year. Uh, All four of those teams, it wouldn't surprise me if they made the playoffs. Uh, I picked the 49ers as a wild card. I picked the Lions as a wild card. The Lions are my pick for bounce back team. Uh, They were pretty good before Stafford got hurt last year. And then I also picked the Giants to be the 8-8, 9-7. 10 and 6, last wildcard team, which they, the NFC is loaded. I might be foolish for picking the Giants. You know, maybe it's Tampa there. Maybe it's Atlanta. You know, maybe it's another NFC West team. But for the fun of it and for our friend Eddie Trunk, I picked the Giants. I picked the Ravens over the Bills in the conference championship game. I picked the Saints over the Seahawks in the NFC championship game. And I picked the Saints over the Ravens in the Super Bowl. Look it. You know who I am. You know what I think. Fuck it. Uh, the MVP, I picked Mahomes. And the offensive player, I picked Breeze. Figure he'll get screwed out of an MVP again. But we'll have his glorious Elway-like ride off into the sunset this year. Uh, TJ Watt was my pick for Defensive Player of the Year. Matt Stafford, my pick for Comeback. Uh, My defensive rookie of the year, I picked Chase Young uh, to win that. And I picked CeeDee Lamb to be the offensive rookie of the year. Offensive rookie of the year can be hard to handicap because, you know, usually running backs are the best. And probably I should have just picked the Chiefs running back. But I already made enough boring picks. 
So I went out in a ledge with Lamb. You know, maybe Cooper gets hurt and Lamb is thrust into the number one role in Dallas and Dak just picks up a chemistry with him and he's awesome. And Boomer Sooner, right? Whatever. Uh, those are my picks. I hope you enjoy the football games on Sunday. I know nobody will be going to them, or maybe some people in limited capacity. But enjoy them. I'm going to try my best. Uh, and I'm recording a bunch of interviews, so I'll be back soon with those. <laughs>